Today's episode of The Thriller Zone with David Temple is sponsored by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller. What are you in front of? What is that yellow wall? That This is just the wall of my dining room. I'm actually renovating my office. So I usually have an office space that I work out of where I can do these in a more quiet setting. But that is has not, there, there are some gentlemen now tearing up the space as we speak. So that I am in my dining room and this is just the wall behind my dining room table. It feels a bit hostage-ish. Yeah, I was going to it feels like I should be talking about how it's not the people who kidnap me fault and right. uh, yeah, and a proof of life and, uh, but yeah. I'm okay yeah. and uh, I'm responsible. I, I know there's no one else to blame, but me. There's no newspaper <laughs> you're holding up to tell us that you're no, in trouble. No, I'm, I apologize for all of the grief I've caused everyone. As I mentioned uh, moments ago, just for those who are just joining us, we Tammy and I have made a move. We no, are no longer in that great little Encinitas digs with the hammock out back and the little yard for Dexter and all that. So we have downsized. So the downside is my studio office has cut in half. The upside is this is one of many rooms in and around our property that is just places for us to hang out and do our show. If I recorded in a space like that, the Amazon delivery person would be just wheeling in a truck full of packages for all my neighbors. So hey. yours is very quiet. It's nice. I like it. And folks, this is Michael Dolan, Winding Road Stories. It is so good to finally have you on the show. It's great to be here. I'm embarrassed because you've had so many amazing people on. I don't know how I'm going to top the Aaron Flanagan's and the Scott Bondoviacs and the Rachel Housel Halls of the world. So I will muddle through and do my best to entertain people. Here's the beautiful thing. You don't have to, you're not competing with any of those cats. Those, every, it's just free reign. It's an equal playing field. Everyone gets to do their own thing. There's no, it's you. It's all about you. Because really, the reason I wanted to talk to you, besides the fact that you are also a, let me make sure that real quick, make sure everything is, because I did not do that. Bah, bah. Nice thing is I edit the show so I, I can cut out all this stupid shit. <laughs> oh, there's going to be plenty of stupid shit. <laughs> yeah, it works cut out for you. Yeah. You got a whole hour of stupid shit coming up. <laughs> like we learned with Aaron, what was her hashtag? Shit Aaron likes. We're going to, we're going to come up with that. She's a, just a... She's just the best human being. Like I met her at BoucherCon last year for the first time. And I was like, I'm just such a big fan of your work. And she's, oh, this is ridiculous. And, and I was like, what? And, and, and that Midwestern voice. And she just could not fathom that a guy from New York would be a fan of a woman from the Midwest writing these kind of Midwestern novels. And, but she's yeah. amazing at it. Yeah. Like, incredible. That's what I love. And I talk about this all the time. I love our uh, community where we all support each other and we're not, there's no real big wicked competition. We all just want to see everyone succeed. And that's, I think that's become one of my favorite things. So everybody brings something to the show that is slightly unique from everyone else. And I want to jump right into what it is you do. I don't want to get like sure. super super technical because I feel like I know you already because I've watched you from afar. I, I've watched your boxing and your weightlifting and your, what is this? What is it? Let's do this real quick as a little way. Folks, if you don't know Michael Dolan and Winding Road Stories, he is an athlete's athlete. He's, you worked for, what was it? The editor-in-chief at Athletes Quarterly. So you've been in and around sports and athletes your whole life. So Let's tell a little bit of that story uh, before we get into the publishing, because I just like to get to know more about you. Sure. Well, I, my background's in magazines. I worked in the magazine business for over 25 years. And uh, around 2010, the economy was still trying to come out of a pretty bad recession. 
And I was trying to figure out what to do next. The magazines were folding at that point. It was pretty clear that the internet had won the war and that people didn't really want to pay for magazines. And I was trying to figure out how can I work in a magazine where I'll be the last person that get laid off. So I started Athletes Quarterly, which was a magazine that was aimed towards professional athletes. We would send it out to professional athletes with the idea being that magazines had become a bit of a luxury prospect, like where photography mattered and the, the ad, the advertisers were looking for people that were pre-qualified that could buy expensive watches and things of that nature. So I started this magazine and the athletes loved it. And it was a really rewarding experience. And I did it for about six or seven years. And it's amazing the people that we got to do it. Lionel, there was one year where Lionel Messi did two interviews. It was me and 60 Minutes. Like, that just freaks me out. So we had people like Usain Bolt and a lot of older athletes that I admired growing up became friends. People like Johnny Bench and Steve Garvey. And so it felt very communal and the way you're describing the mystery writers is like the athletes felt like this was their magazine and they all wanted to participate. And it was a lot of fun. But when it got to be about 2017, the no one was doing print advertising anymore. It just completely fell off a cliff. Wow. And so I had a choice to either try and shift to become an event company where we just produced events or stop and move on to something else. And I'm not an event person at all. I'm like at events, I stand in the corner. I'm not very, contrary to popular belief, and Twitter, I'm not a, an extroverted person. What? And I was like, I'm going to move on and do something else. And I started doing books from that. After that, when, I, when we folded the magazine, I started, that's how I got into ghostwriting. I started ghostwriting memoirs for people. And that was like the transition into books. And is that the reason that I can't now, uh, and forgive me, because I did do a what I felt like it was a deep dive on your books, but I couldn't find a lot of your books. So where are your books currently? Your books, personal books. Yeah. They are all under other people's names <laughs> because I was, for about six years, I was writing books with other, I was working with an agency that was a sort of a matchmaker okay. for people who wanted to do books but did not have the skill to write a book. So they had a book in them, they didn't know how to do it. And so they would call me, say, you've got a sports background or you've got an interest in this. We think you'd be a good fit. And they match us up. It, it was like a dating service. And you talk to this person and if it was a good fit. And then you'd spend the next eight months of your life with them as they told you their life story. And you transformed it into a, a narrative arc in a book. Is that always so nonfiction? Very rewarding. Nonfiction? Yes. Always not fiction. Uh, okay. Yeah, for that, it was always not. They did uh, occasionally would match people who wanted to do fiction. Um, but I never participated in that. I always was more, I think because of my background in working with athletes at, and ghostwriting things for athletes, I think that was something that was an easy call for them because I had a wealth of experience in that. And so... Those tended to be the assignments I got from the agency. And it was a very rewarding experience. And I, you do this for six or eight months and someone's trusting you with their life story. It's obviously yeah. very important to them. And, but at the end of the process, the book would be done. And unless they pay the agency more money, the agency would be like, hey, good luck with the book. Good luck selling the book. And the client would be like, wait a second, I don't know what to do with this. What am I supposed to do with this? And so they'd be pulling on my pant leg. Like, don't leave me. I don't know what to do with this. Yeah. And so I started helping them query agents and trying oh. to find agents or trying to find publishers. And to be honest with you, I hadn't really been through that process very much on my own. Um, I had a couple of dalliances with book projects that I pulled out of because I didn't really feel they were right. 
And um, I was like, wow, this is a whole second job yeah. getting the book published. So it had occurred to me that I bet you there are manuscripts out there that people have written that just are sitting somewhere because this process is so soul killing that they just couldn't handle it. And they were like, I'm just going to shelve it. Maybe it's not good enough. Maybe I, whatever it is. So a, almost exactly at that time, I got a call from a friend of mine named Rodney Hu. And Rodney's one of the best entrepreneurs that I know. And he's, what are you working on? And I told him. And he said, I just sold my company and I'm looking to invest in some things. Is there a business here? Wow. And I said, yeah, I think there is. But let me put it together a real business plan for you. I don't want to just write on a napkin. Sure. For a friend. And so I put together a business plan. He's like, all right, give it a shot. And that's how it all started. Now, I've got a question and excuse my ignorance, but I made this note to myself. What's the difference between a traditional independent publishing company and say a non-traditional publishing company. Now, I know that there is the big publishing company. It used to be the big 10, then it was the big seven, then it was the big five, and now it's right. the big three and a point five, although Simon & Schuster just sold to, what was it, KKR? So that's the top of the mountain, and that has its benefits and its minuses, which I'd love to hear your opinion on. Sure. Then you have... would. Would you say that you, Michael, are the next tier, the traditional independent publishing company? Yeah, I would say independent usually means that you're not affiliated with one of those big three, four, five. You're not backed by a huge multinational syndicate of anonymous people. Usually, <laughs> like, you talk to the guy who is the publisher. And so that is generally what independent means. Okay. And in terms of traditional, that means that the book is available in bookstores and places where you would traditionally find books. All it's right. not just a, you're selling them out of your website. All right. Project. So if I'm, if I'm purely self-published, which I am now, I just sell mm -hmm. on Amazon. I don't even sell it on my own website, but that's pure self-publishing. All the work is on me. If I don't right. push it, if I don't market it, I don't get it done with you. It's a step above, meaning you're wearing multiple hats. You're wearing editor hat, writing hat, marketing hat, sales contract writing hat, right? Yeah. And I would say it isn't always necessarily a step above in this sense. Okay. If you're an experienced author uh -huh. and you have the resources and the knowledge to put together a team of people to publish your book. There's a strong chance that you could put something out that is of the quality and of the standard as something that might be independently published by a small press, right? And so a guy like Lawrence Block, for example, who's a writer I worship and admire, right? Oh, hell yeah. So the last six or seven years, Larry's been publishing everything independently. And I asked him, I said, what? You can publish wherever you want. Why would you do that? And he said, quite frankly, I get to keep more of the royalties. He said, I, I, I'm at the point where no one's going to edit me. Who's going to come in and change my story? And so I think his wife works with him on the story. I, I hope I'm not speaking too far, but he's got people that he trusts that can produce the book. And so he really enjoys having the control and the autonomy to put it. So that's self-publishing too, but you wouldn't know because it's such a high standard. It's like that could be published by anybody. I think this is a question I got for you. And I'm going to, I'm just going to, I got to talk as blatantly as I can. Cause I often, and I was talking to, oh, I was talking to Taylor Moore recently. He's going to be on the show in about mm -hmm. a couple of weeks. And as we were done, this is interesting. You'll enjoy this. I wish I had kept rolling because I tend to aim for that 40-minute spot because I think attention spans are about that long. Mm -hmm. And he was on a, a press junket coming up. But we ended up clicking so well that we just started rambling. But I hit stop record on the camera for sure. I don't even know if I stopped the audio. And we went on for another half hour, and it was some of the best, most inside information that I'd gotten. And, of course, because I had said we're now off record, I couldn't use it. But... Here's my point. <laughs> it's two points. One is, I think people, and I've always played everything safe. 
I try to do a good show. I try to keep everybody happy and so forth. But I walked away from that conversation going, there was some stuff talked out of school that of course would have to be uh, kept off the record, but there was a lot of information passed that I was not aware of. And you're enlightened me to similar things. And I go, I think people need to just hear the straight scoop. And you're the kind of guy that I know I can do that with. Sorry for pointing. Um, you're the kind of guy I can do that with because you're a New Yorker. I've lived in New York twice. Yeah. I love that energy. Mm -hmm. People just say it like it is. It has nothing to do with, I'm not offending you. I'm not trying to speak out of turn. I'm not trying to disrespect anyone, but it's life is short. Get to the point, move on. Okay. So that's one point. The yeah. Point time is a resource in New York. So we tend to get right to the point. And I'm and not offended. Pointing in New York means it's your turn to talk. So I said, so all fine. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and so the other point is, I think I've learned so much. You bring up a superb point. And this is where I'm getting real honest. There are some books coming in my way. And I get a lot of books, Michael, as you can imagine. And some of the covers, sure. let's just, let's talk about covers. They're shit. It's mm -hmm. like somebody's seven-year-old decided to design it with crayons and and they're putting it out there. And I'm thinking to myself, did you look at this? And did you think about that? So my bigger point is I was talking to Lucy Clark about this yesterday. Her show is going to drop next Monday. And we were mm -hmm. talking about how important covers are. And I know this feels a little bit all over the place, but I think you're still with me. Covers, and she said this, she goes, covers are so essential. She goes, when I started out, and she has eight books now, I'm working on her ninth. She goes, somewhere around the fifth, fourth or fifth book cover, she said, I got to step it up and hire a professional who knows how to take the analysis and make it work. Her sales started taking off instantly. So my point is, if you're going to self-publish, there's two big mistakes I made early on. One is thinking, oh, I, I can do everything else. I can do a book cover too. Not really. And the other is, oh, editing, schmediting. People will cut you some slack. <laughs> they won't. To wrap a bow on that, self-publishing, if you're going to do it yourself, to your point, spend the money for the editor, spend the extra little cash for the cover. And I'm talking to someone right now about an audiobook, and I said, drop a little bit of a dime on an audiobook because the audiobooks are the new wave. And yes, you can go with AI, but you're not going to get nuance and feeling and emotion. So you have true blue self-publishing, to your point, if you really know what you're doing then go that way. Traditional independent like you, maybe somebody says, Hey, I don't really know the mechanics like you do, Michael. Can you help me? Can you help me figure out a cover? Can you help me figure out editing? Then you're the perfect fit for that. Sure. In terms of covers, it is a tricky thing, right? I can conceptualize a cover, uh -huh. but I couldn't execute it. Like I couldn't sit on a computer and take the vision that's in my mind and put it on the right. screen. And so I think the biggest resource, you talk about money and you want to hire an editor, you want to hire, but the biggest resource that people waste in self-publishing is time because they want to get the book out right away. Yeah. Especially if you've got a series and you're, you're trying to operate on some semblance of a schedule. I want to get this book out this time and this book out this time. And so that they dovetail off each other. And so you don't give it enough time to get it right. And so you will rush something out that's not ready. And I think that's the biggest issue that people face when they self-publish is they don't give it enough time to get everything right. And so even beyond, I understand it costs money to hire a designer and it costs money to hire an editor, but like you could spend that money. And if you just rush through the process, you could still have a pretty bad end result. Yeah. But my philosophy on covers was altered when I was talking to a friend of mine who's a celebrity who shall remain nameless for obvious reasons as we tell this story. But she knows I tell this story. She was talking about a book that she put out and she was very proud of the book, very proud of how hard she worked with her co-author to do this, but she hated the cover. Yeah. She absolutely hated it. She had told the book company, that's not what I want. I want this instead. And they did exactly the opposite and they put the... So she would talk about the book and every time she would talk about it, she'd say, I hate this cover. Oh. And it struck me as, wow, just imagine working so hard on something and every time you see it, 
you're reminded. Imagine working so hard on something and then you just hate looking at it because you mm. don't like the cover. So we immediately changed our philosophy on that. So now the way we do covers is this. The first thing I'll do is I'll ask an author, do you have an idea in mind? Do you have a vision of what your cover looks like? Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they say, I've always pictured it as this. Sometimes it's, no, I haven't really thought about it. It's fine. I'll get their input first. And then I will sit down with Vanessa Lenong, my partner in crime in this operation, and we'll come up with three different concepts. Oh. And we will hire an artist that we think can execute these concepts. And then the artist will take over from there and they'll put their own spin on things and their own style on things. And they will send us back essentially first drafts of those three covers. And we'll go over it with the author. And then once we settle on, this is the right concept. This is the one we think work. Then we'll really hone in on the details of it, right? Is this the right font? Is this the right color? Is this the title, the right size? Is the background, all the minutia of it. And we'll go through another two versions of it. But by the third draft, we usually have something that we're all really happy with. And that allows the author to be really excited about the cover, but it also allows us to have our input on what we think is marketable. Like, would it stand up against other covers on the bookshelf? It doesn't have to look like the other covers, but does it feel modern enough? Yeah. Does it feel appropriate? And right. so when we layer our expertise over the author and then the artist puts their taste on top of it, usually that's like the magical way to get to a good cover. Now, let's take it to editing. I have mm -hmm. had, I have worked in three different arenas. One is, hey, Frank, buddy, yeah, you're pretty good at editing. You were pretty good in school. Why don't you take a swing at this? Hey, really good friend who's really got a great education and really knows what the hell they're talking about. You want to take a swing at it? Or drop a few extra bucks and say, this is your expertise because it's not just there's developmental and there's editorial and then there's just punctuation. So forth. there's a specific word for that. You take it and run with it because I know at the end of the day, it's and this is probably one of where your expertise comes in. Mm -hmm. You handle that heavy lifting because you're going to, not only are you going to save me time and eventually money, but you're going to do a better job because you spend a lot of time doing it. I feel like my job as the editor is to help you, the writer, realize the vision and the ambition you have for your own story. Oh, that's You come in with something a, a lot... I think we're the collection of all our influences, right? And that's why everybody's books are unique because everything that you've taken in, whether it's film or books or music, or whatever, it's all kind of residing in there and it comes out in what you write. And so a lot of times, the first question I ask people is like, what's your book about? And they'll start describing the plot. It's about a woman and she's in a relationship. That's the plot. What is your book about? What do you want the reader to take away from this story? And sometimes they don't know. Sometimes they're mm. like, I don't know. And from there, we'll have a conversation about what the themes of the book, what, you know, what's the messaging you're trying to have in this book. And then from there, usually with some, if we take a book project on, I, the analogy I use is like an album. And you've, the writer, you've written good songs, but now it's my job to mix the album. It's you're my right. job to make sure that the drums are not too loud, that you can hear the vocals, that the, the bass comes in at the right point. And those inflection points make a huge difference in terms of the presentation of the story, the pacing of the story, the timing of the story. I'm trying to really just sharpen what you're trying to do on the page. And I think a good editor does that. Unfortunately, in today's world, you have a lot of people who will promote their services. I can edit your book and I can do this and I can do that. And they'll convince you that they can do it. And it's like you said, largely you get a copy editing job back. You get your grammar corrected, you get your punctuation corrected, but they're not really honing in on what your story is and whether or not your story is connecting. And yeah. that, I think a good editor will, a lot, I'm not in there rewriting, I'm in there just spotlighting. And then it's the author's job to find, because even though I might have a better idea how to fix it, you're the better person to fix it. Yeah. Because it's your story, you're the writer, you're, it's your personal story, right? Gotcha. So I, I'll give you an example. There's a wonderful documentary that I recommend to all creatives. It's called The Promise. And it's about, uh, it's Bruce Springsteen's 
making of the Darkness on the Edge of Town album. And um, Bruce wrote hundreds of songs for this album, and only 10 of them made it. And he discarded a lot of songs. There were songs that he gave to other artists that became huge hits, like Because the Night was a big hit for Patti Smith, and Fire was a, a big hit for the Pointer Sisters. Yeah. So he was giving away, and he never had, an, even though Boy in the Run came out, he never had a number one song. So he's giving all these songs out, and they're all hits. But he was really focused on, he wanted to create something that was special. He's trying to get the sound right. And the sound engineer comes in and sits with him. And he's explaining to him what he wants. And I promise this is all going to tie back. So he says to him, you ever watch those kind of B-noir movies where there's a couple having a picnic and the camera cuts to dead body? The guy says, yeah. And he says, that's what this song in the album is. This song is the dead body in the film. And the engineer said, it was a brilliant set of cues. He wasn't telling me what to do. He was just telling me how he wanted it to feel. Oh, right? Yeah. And I do that with authors all the time. I, I was working on a book and I was like, there's this Springsteen song about a guy who thinks he's going to win this girl over and he, and he has no chance, but he's so naive and so optimistic. He's going in there and he, he's, I'm the one, and, but he's just going to get run over. I said, that's what I want this character to feel like. I want to be irrationally optimistic, not realizing the bus is just about to run him up. And, <laughs> and the writer's usually like, I got it. And they go back in and they work with their rhetoric and their language and it's seamless. Rather than me trying to spackle in a scene of what I think it should be, it, once the author has the vibe, they can just take it from there. I was going to say, it's tell me, give me the essence of what the theme of the book is about. Is it about love? Is it revenge? Is it redemption? And then give me the emotional impact that you hope the reader will leave with. A hundred percent. Also, yeah. once in your heart, what the themes of the book will be, Yeah, it gets easier to cut the book because I know yeah. people struggle. Like my book's at 90,000 words. I don't know. I can't cut anything out of it. Like once you know what that book's really about, you find 20,000 words really quickly that have nothing to do with what you're trying to say. Yeah. Right. There, yeah. there could be interesting sort of tangential scenes in the story, but they're not driving that theme. They're not making that beautiful music. And when you take it out, now that theme elevates because it's not diluted with all of these other scenes that may be nice on their own, but they don't work here. And so yeah. it's so important for the writer to understand what, like, inertly what the book is about, because that is going to inform all the editorial choices you make. Let's circle back to something we mentioned a second ago, and we it kicked off the show about publishing. And I'd love to know your thoughts about where you see the future of publishing, especially as it pertains to if the big five, we'll just use that as a phrase, if the big five continue to get gobbled up and, and competition is diminished, I think it has its own, there's a negative impact on it as well. Also, to your point about self-publishing, if you really know what you're doing and you do your homework and you've got the money to spend, et cetera, et cetera, then you stand a pretty good chance of being able to do it yourself. So what do you see? Let's just, let's pull the next 10 years. What do you see the future of publishing looking like? I think that in all industries, it's true. So I don't imagine it'd be any different than publishing, but eventually through consolidation, there is always a winner and everyone else is a loser right? One company will be the company and everything else will fall to the side because they will not be able to compete. They won't be able to negotiate paper prices, printing prices, shipping prices. Like this monolith will have such power that it, it's very difficult to operate outside of them. That being said, inevitably, that greed then becomes the downfall of that. We've seen it with Time, AOL, Warner, these companies that seemed unstoppable until it, they just capitalized because you cannot continue to grow at the level that Wall Street wants you to grow indefinitely into the future in perpetuity. It just doesn't work. And so eventually somebody from venture capital is going to come in and you see this happening in the film industry, right? People eyeing assets that they can sell off like TCM that are cultural icons and institutions that they just see as a dollar sign when it's, this is worth this, we could get this for it. And 
I think you're going to see that more with books. I think you're going to see these backlists just become almost like traded stocks. Like they're just cash flow. They just get it already is now when these companies buy each other, they're basically buying the backlist. Right. Because those books, like To Kill a Mockingbird still sells a lot of books. That's a cash flow for your company. Right. And so they're collecting that cash flow to use for other things. And so I think inevitably at some point, it may not be 10 years, but at some point it's going to implode. And then what the future after that is going to be is probably going to be smaller type operations, people publishing their own work. Having been in the magazine business, I've seen this change already. I worked right. in a magazine business where we published 5 million magazines in a month. It's a lot of paper, right? And we'd put it everywhere that you could read a magazine. If you were in a, a, the bathroom of a dentist's office, there was a magazine in there. Right. We're just, we just put everywhere. Yeah. If we sold 35% of those magazines, they would have a party. They were making money. The advertisers were happy. Everybody was happy. The other 65% of the product went into the landfill. And you can imagine that's a really bad business model to throw 65% of what you make out in the garbage. But at that time, it was making money. Yeah. Books operated similarly in the sense that they sign an author and they'll do a printing and they'll guesstimate what they think the book will sell. And they'll place those books wherever they can sell them. And if you're lucky, you get a spot in an airport, but you're in Barnes and Noble and you're in all these bookstores. If it sells well and they sell out, they'll go to a second printing, maybe a third, maybe a fourth, right? And you're doing well. Once they get to the point where the books are still sitting on the shelf, they'll go back to the uh, publishing house and they'll say, look, that's it. We sold it as much as we could. We got to make room for new stuff. So it's either going to get remaindered or you could pick it up. And that's the end, right? With print on demand now, your book never has to go out of print. Your right. book is in print as long as you're willing to sell it or market it, right? And in that instance, if you're an author and you're motivated, your unborn grandkids can make residuals off your book. Right. So what we try to prepare our authors for is like, you have to stop thinking of your book as the brick and mortar paper thing that sits in the house. It's yeah. As much as it's iconic and you love it and it's what you dream to have it, your book's more than that. It's intellectual property that you can continue to market. It has potential to, for other venues like film or TV or even a theater, who knows? But th there's more to it than just the paper version of it. And so I think as authors begin to realize the true value of what they've created, that is going to inspire a lot more people to try to hold on to those rights and hold on to that intellectual property rather than transact with a company that's going to own the rights and kind of determine what to do with them. You bring up some really great points there. And without mentioning names, I am in conversation off the record with a number of people right now who have been approached by and represented by uh, some different independent publishers and things have not gone well. Let's just mm -hmm. use that as a big blanket statement and sure. has sown some rather untasty discord. So I often wonder, back to your point about self-publishing, I, I always go back to this and Lawrence Block was a great example, but of course it does help the fact that Lawrence Block, I've been reading since I was in high school. So the guy's mm -hmm. got a track record, but if you've got a modicum of motivation and an inkling of marketing skill and just enough savvy to know how to find the right people, and perhaps most importantly, even among above money is patience. My gut feeling is that's where my money is. Would I love to be, have a major house pick up my book? Absolutely. And when I talk to all these authors week after week, I'm like, there is a big dose of jealousy in this old man going, man, I sure wish I could be. A but I would say this, Dave, 99% of authors do not make a living doing this. Yeah. You might get an advance. I think I saw a woman on Twitter. It was like yesterday, the day before. She's like, I want to be completely transparent. He's like, I signed a three book deal. It's for $200,000, but it's paid out over the course of the deal in various payments. And I don't get the last one until I've earned out all three books. So you say, wow, you signed a 
a deal for $200,000, you're quit your job. Not really. If it takes six years to do those books, right? Now we're talking 30 something thousand dollars a year um, that you may not even collect all of right. if you don't earn out. And so that number where it seems very enticing isn't enough for you to subsist on, right? No. So all of the great authors, most of the great authors, I know there are a few that have been very lucky. Usually when they sell film rights, that sort of changes the economic structure of things, but have had successful books that people love and their professors, their university professors and their teachers or their copywriters, or they have a day job where they yeah. make a living and then they do this because they love it. I think the dream that most of the authors that I talk to, man, I just want to make enough money for my book so I could quit my job, right? right. That's the goal. And some of them, because they just want to write, others, maybe they don't like their job so much. And rather, whatever the case may be, they're trying to find a way to that reality. But the reality that only exists for very few people. And I think that it's, yeah, it's a dream to get a big five contract. And, and for some people, it's amazing. It, yeah. Amazing things happen. I don't want to make it sound like it's a terrible thing for everybody. Sure. But sometimes people have a big five debut. It doesn't turn out well. And then it's harder for them to get a second contract because, oh, they did that book and it didn't sell. So that's it. Everybody's different. Every, your journey is going to be different. And so whether it's self-publishing or independent publishing or big five, a lot of it depends on what you want to get out of it. What is it that you, are you doing this because you like to tell stories? Are you yeah. doing this because you love to write? Are you doing this because you're trying to earn a living? Are you doing this because you want your book to be a film? What is, what's the end game here for what you're trying to do? And when you know that, that helps to inform what the best place, where are the best places for you to go? Yeah. I want to touch on the subject before we run out of time, something that is on the top of everyone's mind. And I spend, I probably carve out about 20 minutes every day following this trend. And Tammy and I went to see Mission Impossible last night at a theater. And this was a topic uh, of that new Dead Reckoning. And that is AI. And everybody's talking about it. And it's growing faster by the day. What are your thoughts about AI? Do you see, do you personally, so that's number one. Number two, do you personally see it as a supplement to the journey, a, a help and assistance? And number three, I'm sorry to throw three at it, you, but I know you'd be able to do it. And number three is, do you think it's good or bad? Okay. Let's take the last one first. Sure. AI has a lot of different uses. And in some instances, it's probably going to be good. And in other instances, it's probably going to be bad. <laughs> and I safe. think that as a former technology writer, I used to write a lot for Wired and other magazines. Technology stories usually have two, two arcs to them, two acts. The first one is, Wow, this technology is amazing. I can't believe they've invented something they can do that can do this. And then the second act usually is, I didn't think they were going to use it like that. Right. You know, and, and that's true of any technology. Like there's always what it's meant to do. And then right. somebody takes it and, and bastardizes it a little bit. And it becomes like, whoa, we weren't thinking that you were going to make a weapon out of that. And so... That's going to be true. So there are going to be uses for AI where AI is taking in information like in your car. If your car is all computerized and it's learning on the go and it may help your car operate better. And in that case, you'd be like, yeah, that sounds good. So there are going to be, or your appliances or whatever it might be. Sure. But then there's going to be instances in the creative realm where it feels like plagiarism and it feels like that they are taking work that doesn't belong to them and using it in a way that it wasn't intended to be used. And that's going to be bad. And so I think there's always going to be this good and evil argument over AI. It's here to stay. It's not going anywhere. What, whether or not it's going to succeed in publishing depends on the marketplace, right? Yeah. Because when people started taking pictures with their iPhones, I was in the magazine business and I was like, that's never going to replace magazines. Like we hire real photographers that know how to light and that's... Never, Instagram is still going pretty strong. So the marketplace said, no, we like taking our own pictures and we like these filters and we, and that's good enough for us. And so if readers decide, you know what, the AI tie-in series with the TV show I like is good enough. It, it shoots out a new story every day and that's all I really care about. 
then it's going to be successful if people want to buy it. So right. I'm not naive enough to think that people will never do that because they would never want something that they it can't do what humans can do. It might, maybe that's true, but it might be good enough for what people want or willing to spend. Did I answer all three questions or was there one you, still floating? Out no, there? I think you did. And I, I also wonder when I look at some of the shows on now, <laughs> there's some real dog meat out mm -hmm. there. And I wonder, I wonder if it's being written by AI because you can tell AI, Hey, craft something from zero, or you can say, here's five points, uh, build this out in the flavor of a Michael Dolan book. Mm -hmm. And then you have the other, anyway, I'm with you. I think it's, I think it's going to be around forever. I think it'll only get smarter. And I think the people who, I think where I use AI the most is anything that helps my job move faster and more efficient. And I use it basically in, and I'm still toying with it, but I'll take this episode, for instance, and send it into an AI system and have it cut up little snippets. Now I have found that their snippets tend to be generic and they'll just reach in and figuratively speaking and pull out one little piece of the message. Whereas you can always tell the ones that are handcrafted by me because they're cut super tight. The music, the visuals all work together and it tells a, a big story in a tiny way. It is, it's only going to get smarter. So, yeah, but I'll give you some, I'll give you, I'll give everybody a point of optimism. Okay. Well, what it's really doing is parody, right? It's, it's almost doing a parody of what you have created. It takes your work and it puts it in and tries to assemble something that would look like what you, it's an right. imitation in a way. And the question is the imitation good enough to fool people? Parody has been with us for a long time. I remember working at Details, a magazine I was very proud to work at. And then one day I came into the office. There used to be a magazine called Spy that oh, was yeah. a very satirical. They just used to skewer a lot of political figures and celebrities, yeah. stuff like a that. Lot and I don't know who we pissed off, but inside of Spy, there was a 20-page article that looked exactly like our magazine. They had parodied our magazine precisely. And they did a really good job. They were smart people. Yeah. Kurt Anderson and Graydon Carter went on to do pretty big things. So they were really smart. And it just looked like our magazine. And we knew that even though we were really proud of what we had created, we knew we went into a room and we sat down and we tore the magazine up and started over. Because if people could imitate us that well, we were lazy. Like we needed to stay a step ahead. Wow. And I think that's what AI is going to force people to do. If your work is at the point where it can be easily parodied by AI, you've got to stay a step ahead of it. And you've got to do something unique and innovative where it has to catch up to you. And so I think that's going to force writers to be better than what AI has to offer. I think that's a really good point. I think what you're saying is challenge yourself to stretch and reach higher. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to like push that. you to not be complacent yeah. because yeah. if you continue to write something in a very formulaic way, it's going to adopt that formula and it's going to be able to recreate something just like the formula, yeah. right? So you got to break out of the formula so to confuse it. All right. Two more real quick points before we scoot. Mm -hmm. uh, one is I know that Winding Road Stories represents mister, uh, mystery, thriller, sci-fi, mm -hmm. romance, horror, young adult. Is there one... Now, I know your personal favorite is thrillers because that's, uh, at least yeah. from what I've heard, yeah. Do you think there is one of those? So you got mystery, thriller, horror, mm -hmm. sci-fi, romance, young adult. Of those five, is one more popular than the other? And do you see a shift in what could be the next big trend? They all have their own really passionate audiences. Yeah. I would... I. So I think the best way to answer your question is in terms of what we receive in submissions, we have been getting a lot of horror. Horror seems to be very hot. And I think as some authors break into the mainstream a bit more and become more household names like Paul Tremblay and Stephen Graham Jones, that has inspired some people to be more ambitious about the genre and feel, oh, it's elevated. If you look in the crime genre now, like when I see people like Sean 
Cosby and Laura McHugh, they're and Megan Abbott. They're not just great crime novelists. They're great American novelists. Right. Full stop. You don't have to put a genre on them. They're some of the best novelists we have in the world. And I think as you find horror novelists start to bump up against that ceiling where they're recognized more as novelists than not necessarily as horror novelists, a lot more people feel like, oh, I, maybe I can do that. And they jump. And they're just, obviously, there's some opportunists. There's some people like, well, I can write a horror book. That's right. easy. And they come in and it's terrible. But so you have some of that. But it just seems to be a growing, it, I feel like it's reaching its potential a little bit now in terms of what it could be. All right. Let me ask you real, one real quick question on, based upon that, who, give me one of, give me one or two of your favorite people right now that are writing horror. So that if I didn't know anything and I didn't read any horror, I could say, Michael told me, recommend these two books and I'm going to go jump on them. Give me one or two. Yeah. Stephen Graham Jones wrote, he's got a trilogy. The first one being my heart is a chainsaw, which is really launched. Stephen's been writing for a while, but that book seems to have launched him into the stratosphere in terms of visibility. And I know he put a lot of, I think he wrote over a million words to get to the hundred thousand word that it is. We worked on that for a long time. Yeah. That's again, that's the, that's go watch the promise by Bruce Springsteen. That's the work. That's what it takes to, if you want to do something, time is your greatest friend in terms of making it great. Uh, Paul Tremblay, uh, a cabin in the woods is, is now a, a, a well-received film as, as well. So those are some names, but on, on my roster, Claire Castleberry writes amazing novels that set, are set in Louisiana in the nineties that I think are spectacular. I think she's a hidden gem waiting to be discovered in terms of the storytelling that she puts out there. I, I, I know we have a few, the horror staff here continues to grow and it's exciting. It's exciting to be part of it. Awesome. All right. Now I always close the show with the best piece of writing advice and I'm going to come at you and I don't do this often to come at it with a two headed um, beast because you are a writer. Even mm -hmm. a ghost writer could also be seen as a closet writer, meaning I don't get to go out and go, I want a Michael Dolan book. I have to find out who you ghost wrote for. Right. So I'd like to know what your best piece of writing advice is. You have both experienced it and seen it. And then number two, your best piece of publishing advice. If someone is listening to this show for the first time and going, hey, I want to know the best way, what's Michael's best piece of advice as it pertains to moving forward in publishing? Sure. So the best writing advice I would give is you have to find, a, you have to create a writing practice that is sustainable. Consistency is the key. And a lot of times I know it's, it seems trite, but a writer will tell you, you got to sit down and write. And it's, how do I do that? Like, what's this, what are the steps in between that? And I think you just have to find a practice that works for you. And whatever works for you is what's best for you. So if that's 500 words in the morning, then that's what it is. If it's a thousand words after the kids are in bed, then that's what it is. But generally I find that sustainable practices are usually something that you can do almost every day. It's really difficult to try to do this 10,000 words at a time on the weekend. If you can do it, I tip my hat, but it's really hard. I, to me, it's more like exercise. I don't necessarily feel like going into the gym every day, yeah. but I do. And I feel better after I've done it. And I go in the gym knowing I'm going to fail at stuff. I know I'm going to try and lift this and I probably can't, but I'll try. And so you have to get comfortable with that of the trying. The writing's in the trying, right? There you, you build something that's sustainable. You surround yourself with other writers that are as passionate about it as you, and that will give you... You'll see when you go to BoucherCon, when you leave there, you're going to want to break blocks with your head. You're going to be so excited because just all that energy and all those creatives around talking about the stuff that you love, it's just going to fuel you in a way that you realize you can be fueled. So that would be my writing advice. My publishing advice would be this, especially if you're a new writer, right? And we talked a little bit about this. What road should I take? What's the, should I get an agent? Should I just go to a publisher? All these different choices you can make. The one thing that you need to remember is that even if you've never been published before, if you believe in your story, you are creating something of value, right? You are not necessarily looking for somebody to open the gate. You are looking for someone to collaborate with you to realize your vision. And so what you have 
has value. Even though they may have the money or the means to publish it or the means to promote it, you're bringing something to the table that equally is important. They need that book, right? And so once you understand, that will help you make decisions that you're comfortable with. Because what happens is I liken it to buying a home, right? Your, your whole life, you dreamed of owning a home. Right. And you look at a house and you say, hey, we can afford this. I think we should buy it. And so now it's so close to you. You ignore every red flag because it's, I can see myself in that kitchen. And yeah. so you start to overlook things and you're like, the roof is leaking, but how much does it really rain anyway? It only rains like four times in San Diego a year, right? So it's like, right, right. we can mop it up. And you just start to ignore things that you should be like, I don't want a house that leaks. So as long as you appreciate and understand the value of what you have, it'll prevent you from overlooking things and making a bad decision or getting into a bad relationship with a publisher or an agent or whoever it may be. And once you get in, and it sounds like some of the conversations that you've had with people with independent presses, it's really hard to get out at times. And yeah. that's the most frustrating thing at all, of all when you can't get the rights back to something that you work so hard on because somebody else doesn't have it together. Right. And we deal with this all the time. I have writers come to me with books they've previously published and it's like talking to somebody that just got divorced and they don't, it's like you got to earn their trust back. It's, you, I'm literally having a conversation with David. I'm not that kind of guy. I know he hurt you, but that's not me. You know what I mean? It's like a right. relationship. And so you have to rebuild that trust that we're going to say, we're going to do what we say we're going to do. And we're going to work on this together with you. And you're going to have a say, and we're going to be partners in this. And so just understand that what you've created is important. It's obviously important to you. It should be equally as important to the person that wants to work with you. And if it's not, if it's just a transaction, that's usually a bad sign. Yeah. But if that editor's like, I can't wait to help you make this better, that's the space you want to be in. That is so good. Michael, I knew I could count on you for some really good, solid takeaways. We just need a siren and that would just close the show. Like getting an ambulance coming up the Brooklyn Bridge would be fantastic. Yeah, no doubt. I, you've answered all my questions. I've been able to dig deep. Uh, I think the, there's only two questions I have yet, and I may or may not keep them in the show. Number one is, what are you lifting right now? What's the number you're lifting right now? What's that goal that you're always trying to lift? I have a lot of different goals. Like I, about a month and a half ago, I hired a bodybuilding coach, which okay. I had done in the past, but the coaches would just basically send you uh, a workout and be like, do this every day. Right. And it wasn't working for me. So I reached out to this woman who lives in Kansas City named Eunice, who is a professional bodybuilder. Wow. And she talked to me for hours to understand who I was as a person. And she put together a plan for me that included nutrition. She sends me a, a customized workout every day. We talked via email every day. Uh, she gave me her phone number. I could talk to her anytime I want. And she has revolutionized my life. Boucher Khan, I'm coming to you 20 pounds lighter. I'm ready to go. I'm in fighting shape. But yeah, a 47-year-old Korean mother of three is running my life right now because she tells me what to do and I do it. It's working. <laughs> but that just goes to show you that, and this is true, writing and exercise are very, to me, they're very closely linked. I, I, didn't, yes. I didn't realize the connection until Sean posted a, a, a weightlifting thing on his Instagram. And he said, and I said to him, a, a quote from Henry Rollins from a piece that I worked on at Detailed, the iron never lies. Like when nice. you go in, it is what it is, right? It's yes. not, doesn't care about your feelings. Right. It's what it is, right? And <laughs> Sean to, said, when that story came out, I ripped it out and put it in my scrapbook. And he started quoting from it. 200 pounds is always going to be 200 pounds. And I think writing is very much that way. A thousand words is always going to be a thousand words and you got to do it every day. And it's tiring. And sometimes it hurts, but it's the truth. Like it, it, it's your friend. It's your best friend. It doesn't lie to you. It's there for you, but you got to be there for it. Otherwise the relationship doesn't work. I have all different kinds of goals. Uh, Coach Eunice, I love you if you if this stays in and, but this is all tied together for me. I would love to drill down more on that coach just because here's why I have realized now at 64 mm -hmm. that the body isn't reacting the way it did. The shift has been cr incredible. I'm, I subscribe to Arnold Schwarzenegger's uh, newsletter mm -hmm. 
And man, it is the positive corner of the internet. And he basically says, I'd rather you get in there and do 15 minutes of something than to either slack off of, uh, of an hour of mostly nothing or skip days because you can't do the consistency. And that's one thing I have learned. And it's the same with, like you said, it's the same with writing. Give me, get in there and write 20 minutes. Anybody can squirrel away 20 minutes of writing. Write a freaking paragraph. But people will go, I don't have the time. <laughs> really? Tell me all the people yeah. uh, uh, who have written on the train to work, who have written on the bus to work, et cetera. So I don't have any patience. They, or dictate it in your phone. You don't even have to write it down. You could just, a lot of people just talk into their phone and it just turns it into copy and you email it to yourself. Yeah. You don't even have to sit and type. The second thing that I said, I was going to mention, I have been thinking about this guy for days. I knew you were going to come on and, and I thought about him again and he texted just minutes ago. I can't see that. Oh, it's they, Anthony. I'm, I'm old too. I can't, my <laughs> eyesight don't. Anthony Goodell. Yeah. He's a young talent in the making. I love his fire and desire to get better as a writer. And I am working on his novel, which hopefully will be out this fall. If I pull my share of the weight on this, a Anthony had submitted something to us that I didn't feel was quite, the subject matter was quite right for us, but you could see he was clearly talented. It was like watching somebody whip around your neighborhood in a minivan and just uh -huh. cutting corners and making perfect turns. And I was like, you ever drive a NASCAR before? And I just felt like he needed the right vehicle. And we talked through a few ideas. And once we found an idea that we both liked, he went off and running. And I, he's one of the few authors that we took on and signed to a deal before we had a manuscript. We just did it on the faith of what his ability was as a writer. Usually we have a full manuscript in and we're like, sure. all right, this could work. For him, I was like, I just want to work with you. Let's figure out how to make it work. He and I have become sincerely solid friends over the past mm -hmm. several months. With Anthony, we just started direct messaging and then we took it to texting mm -hmm. and now we text all the time. He's texting again. And we have such a great relationship based upon words and emotions. And I personally think he's one of the most fantastic creators of ideas that I've ever met. Now, the language is colorful and powerful and, and poetic all at the same time. So I cannot wait to see what he does for you this fall. And he's going to be on the show. I'll guarantee you. <laughs> that would be great. As I said earlier, you, we are all the collection of our influences. And yeah. one of the things that really impresses me about Anthony is he's extremely well-versed in the genre. Yeah. It's hard to talk about a book that he hasn't read voraciously. And yeah. a lot of his authors that were influential to him were influential to me. And I think that was part of why we connected so easily. Yeah. But I respect the respect he has for the craft. And yeah. a lot of young writers don't carry that so much, the dedication. And like he really puts the time in because he wants to be great at it. And I, I admire that ambition. That is what impresses me the most. I've never seen anybody so tenacious. He will tell me, I've sworn off the social media for three weeks. I don't, I'm not going to watch anything on television or a film for four weeks. I'm going to just drill down and work and master this thing because I want to be good. I never yeah. hear him saying, I want to be the next blank. He just says, I want to be the best I can be. Yeah. All right. I want to say in closing, you have given us a lot to think about. You've had great insight, superb recommendations. And with, I wish you all the success with the Winding Road Stories. We're going to tilt a little beverage at BoucherCon, perhaps. If Coach Eunice approves, yes, we will. <laughs> She's got me on a straight and narrow, but ho hopefully I'll be able to get a, a, a furlough for BoucherCon. Uh, okay. Daddy just wants to celebrate and lift all my community up. I was very grateful last year because I was a newcomer and the, the Southern gentleman embraced me as one of this Yankee as one of their own, Sean and Bobby Matthews and Mark Westmoreland and Chad Hanna and, and Scott Vondoviak and the list goes on and on. And they all made me feel like I was a Southerner too and, and a brother. And it was just an amazing experience. And 
I can't wait to do it again and to make new friends. There's going to be a lot of people there that weren't there last year, and I'm very excited to meet them for the first time as well, including yeah. yourself. It's going to be, and I'm looking forward to getting to San Diego and I'm going a day early to visit all of my friends at the bookstores, like Mysterious Galaxy and Verbatim and all, all the places out there that I love. So it's going to be a fun time. Make sure you stop in and see Julie and or Nancy at Warwick's down there in La Jolla because it is a oh, yeah. beautiful store. Yeah. Oh yeah. I've been favorites. there. Like I, I've toured the, I've toured the grounds in San Diego a few times. So yeah, yeah that's great. All right. Listen, once again, uh, if you want to go to the website to learn more about Michael and his crew and his business and how maybe you could work with Michael, it's windingroadstories.com. Um, and Michael, once again, thank you so much for the gift of time. Thank you, David. I appreciate you letting me into this elite club of <laughs> killers, this murderer's row of authors. Like, I feel like I flipped in somehow, but I'm grateful. Your front row seat to the best thrillers. The Thriller Zone has been presented by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller.